This is Reimagine Law, a podcast about legal education and careers to help students navigate their career choices. Hello and welcome to Reimagine Law, where today we're talking about legal ethics and professional legal ethics. Um, And what a week it has been. Uh, You may be listening back to this, but just to let you know, we're recording this at the end of June, when there's much talk in the legal profession at the moment about strikes that criminal barristers are going on, uh, release statements from the Lord Chief Justice about how to deal with that in relation to wasted costs orders. So I really would encourage listeners after this episode, if they're interested, to have a little look on uh, the Criminal Bar Association website and have a read into that and think about the legal ethics um, surrounding um, that position. Without further ado, uh, let me start by introducing our three incredible guests who join me today, uh, Mary Westcott, Rosemary Rollison and Lisa McClory. Um, Perhaps I could individually just ask you to say a a few lines quickly about what you do. Uh, Mary. Hello, I'm a barrister at Doughty Street, and so I'm self-employed, and I started working in this job in 2007, and my area of law was originally general criminal law, with some other things thrown in, and from about 2009 onwards, I started specialising in extradition law, which is a a very specific area, um, which is uh, principally about people wanted um, in different countries in connection with a crime. Hello, um, I'm Rosemary Rollison. I'm delighted to be invited to take part in this discussion on legal ethics. I've been a solicitor since 1988, so for over 30 years. And from very early on in my career, I practiced in professional regulatory law, which means that I advise the organizations which govern all the professions, from lawyers, accountants, health professionals, such as doctors and dentists, through to architects, surveyors, and veterinary surgeons. Uh, My role at the moment is that I advise in different areas, including providing legal advice to tribunal panels, which hear disciplinary complaints. I advise on policy issues and I provide legal training and work on developing and drafting rules and legislation. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Lisa McClory and I am a director at Fractal Legal, which is a business I've founded. I advise businesses on environmental, social and governance requirements. Um, My background is as a solicitor. Um, I worked at Slaughter in May and at KPMG as a legal technologist too. Um, Really interested in ethics and the way that we can uh, conduct business in law better um, for the benefit of society and clients. Okay, what wealth of knowledge and experience we have today in this discussion. Let's kick straight off uh, with the first question that I'm, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on. What do we mean by ethics when we're talking about the legal sector? Um, Rosemary, I wonder if I could start with you on this one. Thanks, Fran. I'm speaking very much from the regulatory perspective because that, that's what I do. The context, in my view, is that lawyers encounter individuals and organisations at vulnerable and important points in their life, property purchase, divorce, being accused of a crime, financial transactions, and in a scaled up way, similarly for commercial organisations. So clients have to trust lawyers with their sensitive and personal information. And to some extent, we may be responsible for handling large sums of money for clients. Clients and the public have to place their trust in lawyers, but 
will act in their best interests, put their interests above our own and be completely trustworthy. So in that sense, uh, lawyers have a privileged position in society. And how we exercise that responsibility is what the codes of conduct for barristers and solicitors uh, aim to tease out and, and codify. So lawyers must comply with the principles and standards of conduct which are set out in the uh, handbooks issued by the two main professional bodies, the Solicitors Regulation Authority and the Bar Standards Board. The core parts of those principles are very similar for both of the professions. They draw out the key elements of ethical behaviour to clients and uh, professional relationships with the wider public and other, other organisations. The core elements of the conduct principles are being honest and acting with integrity, although in fact there's very little actual reference to ethics or a duty to act ethically. From my perspective, I would say that a lawyer will be able to recognise principles of conduct in the rules and follow them. But what is acting ethically? It means more than that. It means adding another layer to the rules, which is looking beyond the words of the principles and understanding why they exist. A lawyer needs to be able to recognise the ethical issues in practical situations and show they exercise judgment in applying those uh, rules. It's particularly necessary because as lawyers, we may face tension between different professional standards. We have duties to the court as officers of the court in the administration of justice. We have duties to our client to put their interests first and above our own. And we have duties to the public and society at large and being a bit more practical, there are also commercial business interests at play, the interests of our firm or our chambers, and that's a real life factor. So we have to balance all of those issues, which may be in, in competition in certain situations. So my uh, thought about this is that a lawyer needs to understand why those rules exist, exercise their judgment to apply those concepts, to resolve situations that actually find themselves in on a day-to-day -day basis. Fascinating. Um, and you can already see where those, those conflicts will start to come in just from hearing the examples that you give. Uh, Mary, I'll bring you in on this question as well. What do we mean by ethics in the legal sector? Well, I think it's really helpful. Thank you, Rosemary, for summarising the way that you did, because you've got ethics in a general sense. Once upon a time, I studied philosophy, and that's just doing the right thing. So whenever you do something, you have to do the right thing. That's that's the general sense of ethics. And um, millions of pages have been written about philosophical ethics. But in the professional context um, and in the legal professional context, we, we're actually very precise about it. And lawyers have done what lawyers do and tried to um, identify the different ways in which ethics operate in every decision and every act that we might make professionally. Um, so so it, it's really quite specific, legal professional ethics, but actually it's tapping into that much broader, woollier, all-pervasive um, attempt to do the right thing. Um, and that's why when we're studying and when we're in practice, um, there's an attempt to always remember that that's in the background and it's, it's never gone away. It's, it, it's, um, it's important to be aware of it at all times, because as we all know, in any... Um, 
scenario it's when you're not thinking about something that it suddenly becomes the most important <laughs> so yeah that would be my um my potted summary piggybacking on what rosemary said <laughs> and uh, you know i think um mary probably both you and i've had this experience where ethics pops up in the most unlikely of times when you think you're going to have you know quite a straightforward hearing or, or, or something like that you know it's uh... yeah and and the, the bar code of conduct um involves a, a core duty not to diminish the trust and confidence which the public have, for example. And that's not just how you're behaving at work. That's um, that's how you're behaving outside of office hours. And I'm sure Rosemary's got a lot of interesting examples. I know we can all come up with some. Yeah, that, that's been a very uh, big debate in the regulatory sector is we have this set of principles, we have conduct rules, but how far should the regulator or regulation try to extend into our personal lives, which are not purely practice related, uh, it's always been accepted that a criminal conviction for a relatively serious criminal offence will call into question your status as a professional. But beyond criminal matters, how far does it go? And we've had some recent cases involving um, inappropriate relationships between uh, solicitors and colleagues in a firm. Uh, we, I have actually seen in the Gazette this week, there is a um, solicitor who was uh, fined uh, quite severely for misusing a blue badge in his own time by parking in a disabled space regularly. So we have all sorts of examples and I think that, that the sort of the, the, the philosophical question is how far should regulation reach into our private lives or do we switch off when we leave our practice and become a different person? And I think at the moment, the answer to that is definitely no. But where is the grey area is the question. And it's a hot topic when you think about politicians. <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed, indeed. And, you know, um, we often see that image, don't we, of various films, TV dramas of the fat cat lawyer. You know, um, when I was in criminal practice, the first question anyone asks you is, how can you represent someone you think is guilty? And I think you've both provided really nice answers here, but actually it's the codes of conduct that, 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 that guide the behaviour. Well, let's move on to the, the codes of conduct. Um, Rosemary, you've mentioned the uh, handbooks that are issued by the two professional bodies um, for barristers and solicitors. Um, Let's look at those. I wonder whether you could give us um, each of you some examples um, from these rules in practice, perhaps bring them to life a little bit for us. Uh, I'll start, but because I know Mary's going to have a lot more fascinating examples from her practice that, that I do. Um, although obviously all the cases I see in disciplinary, disciplinary context, they do raise these sorts of issues. And for me, having thought about this, the rules are there, the problem is that is when several of them apply and potentially conflict in a particular situation. Uh, an example I'm giving you, a very simple example, is uh, something that's very problematic, particularly for solicitors firms and the larger firm, the, the more difficult it is, which is conflicts of interest in taking matters on and deciding whether you can act for clients. It's very problematic. It can bring into conflict, on the one hand, the duty to act in the best interests of your client, the duty of honesty and openness towards your client, but also, as a side issue, the commercial interests of your firm and being realistic, we're all subject to uh, those kind of interests. 
So I've, I've given a very simple example. If we imagine that I am a junior lawyer in a large solicitor's firm, and I am lucky enough to be asked to act for an individual accountant, and is X, who's facing disciplinary proceedings by her own accountancy regulatory body. And my client, Ms. X, is one of several accountants accused, and the firm she's worked for is also accused as part of the same case. But my client's role is relatively minor. So I'm very happy. I take her on as a client. And then a couple of days later, the accountancy firm itself approaches me. It's a large international practice. It asked me to represent it. Now, from a commercial perspective, I know I would love to represent the firm. It's a bigger piece of work. It's high profile. I know my firm would be very happy for me to act for the, that uh, company. And indeed, such a significant instruction might assist me in being promoted to being a partner. But from an ethical point of view, I've already accepted instructions from Ms. X. I know enough about the case to know that I can't act for both Ms. X and the firm because their interests are in conflict. So I am committed to act for Ms. X. My professional duty is to act in her best interests. I accepted her instructions and I can't now say, well, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Ms. X, I prefer to act for uh, the firm uh, because it makes more sense commercially. So I'll leave my examples there. I think those would be far more fascinating, but that I think is hopefully a sort of real life example of a situation where different interests conflict and you've got to resolve them. Thank you very much, Rosemary. Probably the example I'd pick is the hot topic that Francis mentioned at the beginning, which is what happens when a barrister wants to take a day of action or go on strike. Two of the, um, the first two core duties in the Bar Code of Conduct uh, the first one is your duty to the court, I'm paraphrasing. And the second one is the duty to act in the best interest of each client. There are a whole load of other core duties and examples that flow from that, but those are at the very top of the code of conduct for a reason. And if a barrister wants to honour a, a strike action or a day of action, then they're deliberately failing to attend court in a prearranged hearing. And that brings into focus the clash of those two duties, your duty to the court and your duty to the client. And all of the guidance is that even though there might be collective action on the part of a group of criminal barristers or, or barristers more generally, each ethical decision has to be a personal decision by the barrister in question. And um, it, that has thrown the cat amongst the pigeons to to put it politely, um, with pending strike action that's due to start on Monday. We're recording this on a Thursday. Uh, uh, there have been different um, statements from different important bodies um, in our regulatory arena, and the Bar Standards Board has been the most neutral, arguably, of all of them in their, in their public statement, directing barristers to the different duties that apply. If you want to look at, have some examples of different real life ethical dilemmas there's something on the bar standards board um, website that links you through to the bar ethics hub and that has common problems common dilemmas split between criminal civil areas of law um, one easy one that comes up a lot is giving of gifts um, and what's an acceptable gift to receive and what's not an acceptable gift to receive that might um, generate the perception of bias 
but a lot of people have got some interesting war stories about the different gifts that they had to have, they got and they had to declare, and some quite modest um, gifts that wouldn't be problematic at all, like a homemade bracelet that says best barrister, for instance. Is that from personal experience, Mary? Perhaps. <laughs> you could not comment. <laughs> Really interesting examples there. Yeah, I'm thinking of one that um, that used to come up in criminal practice when I was there, um, where if you're defending and you know that your client has got a previous conviction, uh, but it doesn't appear in the prosecution papers, which typically contains a list of a defendant's previous convictions, are you under a duty as an officer of the court, like Rosemary said, to then disclose that um, to the judge? Um, so there's some interesting comments and thoughts, you know, around around that one that have, have come out over the years. Um, and the situation is different there if it materially affects the minimum sentence. So if, for example, it was the final strike on a burglary, um, that's one of the common dilemmas that's um, narrated in the Bar Ethics Hub. Yeah, so, that, so that's if, um, if you could... Uh, convicted of three domestic burglary offences there's a certain minimum tariff that a judge has to apply that's the the three strikes rule isn't it um but and i think you know whether you're directly asked as well could be could be something that's that's quite an important factor and constantly um that there's a duty on you not to mislead the court either intentionally or recklessly so um it's about choosing your words extremely carefully <laughs> um I like the broad rule of thumb for people in practice called the blush test, which is if um, everything was completely known um, to the judge or the tribunal that you're speaking to, would you be embarrassed? It's the blush test, very basic. And usually that's a very helpful rule of thumb when you have to decide something quickly. Um, the, the other point that's come out um, time and time again in ethical discussions is talk it through with a senior colleague or a colleague. Um, so um, often it, you've got these detailed codes of conduct, but it's just not possible to take the time to reflect and decide. Um, so if in doubt, the blush test is a, is a good one um, and trying to get the consent of your client. But again, sometimes there's not time to do that either. I think Mary's made a very good point, particularly for the bar, which is the speed at which things happen. And probably solicitors have a bit more time to actually give consideration to these issues and resolve them after careful thought. But what I was going to say was, I think, when an ethical issue arises, or if your if your conduct is called into question as a result of an ethical decision you've made, uh, what's also important to the regulator is that you've shown that you've applied your judgment, you've thought about it, you've done your best to come to the right conclusion, given it serious consideration, even if you ultimately got it wrong. Um, and you might, for example, be able to show that you discussed it with your seniors or with a colleague, perhaps even that you consulted the ethics um, helpline for the SRA or the BSB. Because we do will sometimes get things wrong, what counts is that you, you apply judgment to try and reach the ethical uh, right outcome. I was just going to backtrack a little bit, if that's all right, just to add in that the Bar Standards Board is the body that regulates um, barristers in various areas, whether they've got their qualifications or whether they're behaving properly in terms of their ethics, they're two examples. And um, they're the ones who, the Bar Standards Board, who can start disciplinary proceedings. So they hold the, 
the big stick to police the barristers. And you could again, you, you could look on their website to see what barristers have done wrong and what sorts of penalties they've prompted. They can be very steep financial penalties or, or ultimately being prevented from practicing anymore. Sometimes you might be quite surprised reading the news items on there at some how bad some of the things barristers have done at how relatively trivial the penalty and there's been quite a lot of controversy over for example proven allegations of groping people in your legal team and yet relatively trivial um, allegations but it's easy to sensationalize and like when looking at what sentence somebody's got for a crime unless you know the full facts of a case I'd yeah you don't you don't really know what's gone on. Great. Um, I want to move us on if I can. Um, and Lisa, I, I suspect this question is probably more aimed at, at you. But I want to broaden out a little bit more um, and talk more generally about how firms, chambers and employers can behave ethically, if I can do the little fingers above my head when I say ethically. Um, are there any tensions with this? And, and should they be behaving ethically? Um, so Lisa, uh, over to you. Well, I think a traditional way to see lawyers is as quite neutral service providers. They help clients to access justice, no matter how unpopular the client or the cause. Um, this is certainly the case for barristers who have a cab rank rule. And um, as a general rule, barristers can't choose their clients. There are some exceptions, of course. But generally, barristers can't turn down a client because of a belief they hold about the client's character or reputation or perhaps their conduct or whether they're guilty or innocent. And that's really part of a, our, our UK legal system fundamentally. It, it ensures that individuals can access justice because otherwise people who are accused of serious crimes or with an unpopular cause could really struggle to find a representative to help them. But that rule doesn't apply in the same way to solicitors who might also be acting on commercial transactions Maybe they would be drafting contracts to help new projects and deals to happen. Um, for example, if a company wants to buy a new site and build a factory on it, solicitors would bring everything to life by drafting contracts to make it all happen. In this context, perhaps one question that's been discussed quite a lot recently is how lawyers can and should respond to the climate crisis. If a client instructions may be a new gas pipeline or a fossil fuel power plant, then um, one thing that people have been wondering is, should lawyers use their skills and expertise to bring it into being? Um, the climate crisis is obviously a major global emergency, um, and the UK Law Society has um, itself said that the climate crisis is the greatest perceivable threat facing modern humanity. Um, to prevent irreversible harm, then, we need to work to reduce emissions um, quickly, and essentially by doing their work, commercial lawyers could enable fossil fuel projects to happen, which raises ethical questions. So should law firms just carry on doing their work because it's not illegal to work on fossil fuel projects? But if they do, how can they reconcile that work and the carbon emissions it creates with their ambitions and commitments as a firm to net zero and emissions reduction? So perhaps work on fossil fuel projects should arguably be part of a law firm's own scope three carbon emissions. So reacting to these concerns, in the US, um, some law students um, are calling for law firms to pledge not to take on any work to support the fossil fuel industry. They've set up the Law Firm Climate Change Scorecard, um, and that's part of the Law Students for Climate Accountability movement. There's a list um, setting out um, 
which top law firms have supported fossil fuel transactions. And they say that top US law firms have supported $1.36 trillion dollars rather of, um, of transactions for the fossil fuel industry and received $35 million in compensation for lobbying on behalf of fossil fuel companies. Incidentally, the uh, student movement, movement mostly lists US law firms and there isn't an equivalent of it yet in the UK. So set aside um, a wider backdrop of criticism of law firms in other, other contexts, such as the Russia-Ukraine war and immigration policies, these are really difficult times for law firm ethics. There's a, a lot on the agenda, um, but just given the, the um, urgency of the climate crisis, it doesn't seem something that law firms can ignore or postpone for quieter times. Um, as John Kerry, the um, US presidential envoy for climate has um, addressed the American Bar Association recently in 2021. And he said, you are all climate lawyers now, whether you want to be or not. Um, so the main point is really that law students starting out in the profession really need to keep up to date with these developments and think carefully about the sort of legal role you want to take on and how you might use your own skills and knowledge to help issues like the climate crisis. Great. Um, Mary, uh, Rosemary, I don't know if either of you wanted to come in on that as well. Well, just more generally, I, I wanted to point out, if it's not too basic for your audience, that um, as a self-employed barrister, we're, we're normally operating in a set of chambers, so a collective of self-employed people. So we're, we're individuals, um, although often chambers um, tend to have a central ethos, but it's very much a looser um, concept than um, those professional, precise professional legal efforts that we've been discussing so far. Um, so my chambers, for example, um, prides itself on access to justice, human rights and civil liberties and using the law to achieve those, those aims. Um, but having said that, uh, we are um, individuals practicing at, at Doughty Street and um, ethics in, in the professional legal sense, for me at least, um, the overarching points are, are those professional legal ethics. And if we're honouring those, um, we're, that, that's enough really on our plate. Um, but because we, own, we work from buildings, there's ways in which we can, for example, um, we've just today at Dow Street been giving planning permission for solar panels on the roofs of the buildings that we operate from by Camden. Um, and, and so that there are ways in which we can operate ethically according to that looser concept. Uh, we do have an ethos, um, but probably we've got enough on our plate, I would say, in honouring our legal professional ethics <laughs> before we get to that level. Brilliant. Rosemary. Yeah, uh, to give the perhaps the, the solicitor's perspective, solicitor's practice within firms largely, uh, and firms as entities are regulated by the SRA as well as the individual lawyers within them. Uh, so, so that is there. Law firms are businesses and they have all the usual responsibilities that businesses have. I think probably most law firms now have a stated set of public values that they adopt. And I think in the way that it's, it's the way that matters are for, for all businesses now, businesses want to be seen by the public and by their clients to be acting ethically in many respects in their business practices, as well as actually in their practice of the law or their profession. So that is the trend of things at the moment, I think. And, um, yeah, 
it's corporate social responsibility, setting out values, setting out the ethos of your, your firm or your company that applies to lawyers as much as to other types of business. So just quick fire, do you think uh, there's a duty to use the legal profession for social good? I, I, I'll go first. I think there's a moral imperative to do so, but not a duty. But that comes down to your definition of the difference between duty and um, doing the right thing. Uh, but, but a legal professional duty in the precise sense in which we've discussed, I would say no. Uh, a moral imperative, I'd hope, to, hope everyone would agree with me. Yes, I do. I do agree. I was going to say the moral imperative is an attractive one, isn't it? We, if we live in a free society, we want to believe that law has a moral purpose. In thinking about this question, I focus on the regulatory side again, and I think there is a current question in the regulatory world of are conduct principles and requirements, are they to regulate, to restrict, to control, or are they sort of, should they be more aspirational in seeking to achieve something in the profession and in society? And if I can give you a brief example of something that's the subject of current debate at the SRA, the SRA has recently uh, closed its consultation on a new provision in the Code of Conduct for Solicitors which says that uh, solicitors will be required to treat colleagues fairly and with respect, not to bully or harass colleagues or discriminate unfairly against them, and to challenge behaviour that does not meet this standard. Now, you could say that all of those elements are covered in other existing provisions of the code, but the SRA thinks it's important to put those into one clear statement. So there's been a consultation about that, there has been discussion about whether that is seeking to go too far in regulation. The requirement to challenge behaviour particularly is under discussion. The Law Society has raised some criticisms. Uh, but again, it potentially raises that issue of whether regulation should seek to influence behaviour outside of professional practice and whether code should, as I say, be aspirational or simply uh, restricting and controlling behaviour. I, I think that there's a strong tradition of, of pro bono social work in law, which is really admirable. And um, certainly as a legal technologist, I can see there's a lot of really great collaboration projects ongoing at the moment, um, amongst which is the Chancery Lane project, where they're working on um, sharing efforts to draft climate clauses. And um, I do see also that a lot of those tend to be quite focused in the commercial sector as regards legal tech. So it would be really good to see some more initiatives focusing on helping individual litigants get access to justice too. Fab. Okay, and the last thing I'd like to ask the three of you um, is uh, a question we're trying to ask all of our guests on all of our episodes um, from now onwards, which is um, in 30 seconds or less, could you tell us about one interesting thing about your career journey or path? Um, Rosemary? The um, interesting thing I picked on, such as it is, is that for most of my career I worked in city law firms and I first became a partner in 1996, quite some time ago. But um, four years ago, I decided to set up my own law firm and be a sole practitioner. I am a firm regulated by the SRA. Uh, so I'm also self-employed, as, as Mary is now. Uh, it wasn't a route that I ever planned or foresaw for myself earlier in my career. But 
it came about because of the way my career had developed as a, as a natural next step. I'd moved into uh, my own practice really in individual roles for different regulators. So it made a sense. So working almost freelance has benefits in what's probably the latter stage of my career of allowing me flexibility and autonomy. And actually it works very well in this post COVID uh, work environment. My feeling is that it's important to remember the joys of being self-employed as well as the um, the burden that you can sometimes feel. And um, as a result of that independence, I was able to take a, a year working part-time and go and live in Amsterdam between 2011 and 2012 uh, and carry on my practice and come back to London and work here and there and do a paperwork. I was also able to go traveling for six months between 2018 and 2019. And there may be people that you work with who find that a little bit frustrating. <laughs> and it, it, it does um, create its own difficulties having those sorts of career breaks or, or changing the way you work. But um, it's, it's still relatively unusual to take that time out for yourself. Um, and I feel like it's a privilege to have worked with people and in organizations that help facilitate it. Um I have recently qualified as a data ethics practitioner, so I did a qualification with the Open Data Institute, um, learning all about data analytics and um, basically becoming accredited to conduct data ethics um, dialogues in companies, which has been really fascinating and certainly um, opened my eyes to everything that's going on in the world of, of data and as regards ethics too. Fab. Okay. Um, this has been a fascinating episode. Thank you so much. We're going to put quite a lot of links into the show notes today because there's been many actions that have been coming up as we've been talking. Um, but the few that stick out in my mind um, that I'd encourage our listeners to do um, is first of all, to, to click on the links below and have a brief look at the core duties for barristers and the SRA principles um, for solicitors. And they'll give you a nice overview flavour in quite a simple way of what those professional um, codes are and the, and the rules. Um, and perhaps also um, log on to the BSB website like uh, Mary suggested earlier and have a look at some of the, the examples. And I think that will really help to give life to the discussions that our guests have kindly brought to the podcast today. Thank you ever so much, uh, Mary, Rosabri and Lisa for your fabulous contributions today. Um, thank you all for tuning in and listening. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, and please direct message if you've got any ideas for episodes that you'd like to hear. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.